Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the circuits of time. A home for the best in 80s movies. Grab your root beers and let's get rocking. Hello, welcome to another episode of the circuits of time. Episode 18, in fact. And I am your host, JD, and I'm joined by the one, the only, Jeff Dog. Well, no beating around the bush on this episode, Jeff Dog. We are jumping right in. And well, today's film is a beloved classic starring one of the 80s most beloved actors. And you may know it from the following sound. And if you didn't get it from that, J-Dog, what is the film we'll be discussing? Uncle Buck. Tell us a few things about the wonderful Uncle Buck. Some brief facts. Well, Uncle Buck was written and directed by our idol, John Hughes. It was released in August of 1989, having been made from the start in January of 1989. It was made, released in a very short span of time. And it made $80 million on a budget of $15 million. And it stars the one, the only, John Candy. Yeah, I mean, you almost don't need to say the other members of the cast. It kind of almost is a bit of a one-man show, isn't it? Yeah, and even despite the fact that it did launch the career of one uh, Macaulay Culkin, whatever whatever happened to him. <laughs> Short-lived, may that be. <laughs> yeah. But of course, John Candy is the is the the star of this, and I'm sure we'll go on to talk more about the casting and uh, other potential actors to play the part. But my goodness, does he make it his own? Mm, no, I look forward to that. Um, it's interesting you said that the film was was this production only a nine month production until when it started to the actual release. Yes, very short. I believe it was January 1989, production started, and it had that release date in uh, the middle of August of the same year. That's almost unheard of, isn't it? I mean, certainly nowadays, the kind of films now, the huge scales, production scales, you don't really see that now. And and, and that's strange, actually, considering the fact that so much is filmed on digital nowadays. You'd think it would be much shorter. Spanning a much shorter time frame to turn around the films, but I don't know. I think as time goes on, technology means films take longer to make and release, uh, not least of all with the uh, coronavirus at the moment. Of course, and I think it, it maybe says a lot about John Hughes. I mean, we've said on, on previous John Hughes episodes that he can belt out some of these scripts in 48 hours. So I imagine he, he kind of applies that same approach to some of the production of the film itself. Yeah, he had some work ethic on him, John Candy, not John Candy, John Hughes, uh, just in the writing, just like you said, thinking back to playing Strange and Autobiography, also an older episode that we did. Um, I think he wrote first or most of that film in about 10 hours or something ridiculous like that, Space of a Weekend or something. So, yeah, he, he, uh, he, he had quite the work ethic going on. So what is Uncle Buck all about? Movie synopsis. So when Cindy and her husband Bob have to leave town for a family emergency, 
The only individual who's available to babysit for the three kids is Bob's lazy freewheeling brother, Buck. And while he gets on with the younger kids, played by uh, Macaulay Culkin and Gabby Hoffman, respectively, he must change his audacious lifestyle and rescind his careless ways if he wants to be a responsible caregiver for the the eldest daughter, the the surly-looking and acting, certainly acting, Tia. And there's lots of hijinks along the way. And I think we learn a lot about the children. The children learn a lot about themselves. And we learn a lot about Buck. And Buck learns a lot about himself too. So it's got that warmth up to it, which we've talked about with previous John Hughes films. It has. And we'll get right into that. I think. don't know about you. Did you ever have a babysitter when you were a kid? <laughs> yeah, but they were <laughs> nothing like Uncle Buck. <laughs> I mean, I think we didn't, maybe it's more of an American thing, isn't it, to babysit? Maybe it was just kind of your nan would be stay the night, something like that over here in England. But the concept of a babysitter probably isn't as common as it maybe is in America. Would you say that's right? Yeah, I agree. When you say the, the word babysitter, even, um, I, I can't help but think of another film from that time. Don't, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. Or uh, I thought you were going to say adventures and babysitting. Adventures and babysitting. Yeah, sorry, JD. That's that's the one I was thinking about actually. But yeah. we've pulled, pulled straight away th- a couple of films in that era that kind of tackled the concept of the babysitter. Yeah, and they they usually um you know stereotype uh, teenage teenage girls usually um, once the kids are supposedly asleep. What normally happens then? Oh, the the babysitter usually invites like a love interest around, get wrong. <laughs> That's exactly what happens. Do you know what? What film is it when that happens and the kid wakes up and starts to film them and projects it on the side of the house? It's not, <laughs> is it Problem Child? I think it's Problem Child. Uh, <laughs> it could be. Oh, classic. But let's get stuck into to Uncle Buck. The first character we, we actually see is Tia. Um, and she's kind of just walking down the street. She, uh, I think she's got some like dark shades on. Uh, she's dressed uh, in a particular way. It's interesting that the film starts with Tia. It's kind of nodding to the fact that maybe she hasn't got a top villain, but this is very much maybe her film, her story, maybe even her journey. We are going to learn a lot about this character, and uh, it, it, I, I did pick up on that actually as well when I, when I, when I was re-watching it for this. The film's called Uncle Buck. It's about the family. We think of the iconic scene through the letterbox with Macaulay Culkin and uh, his stardom. But the fact that we're introduced to the teenage character straight away, just, I mean, it, it, it hits those buttons of what makes a John Hughes film a John Hughes film from that from that era, focusing on the teenage aspect of things. Um, so perhaps that's him doing a, a, a his trademark or referencing his own films. You know, we've become a, this was 1989. His, his films have become a, almost like a genre of their own by this point. But yeah, you are right um, that it focuses on her first. Um, deliberate choice, obviously, with the narrative to tell it from her perspective. And hopefully we are going to learn something about her. And the way she acts and carries on from the get-go, with the looks she gives and the, 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 the squinted eyes and the, the, the sassy language and uh, the real bad attitude. Hopefully, we're going to think there's going to be a change in this character because she's she's deliberately unlikable, isn't she? At the start of the film, she is, and and, and we've said um, about a couple of our 
movie reviews that about the 80s movie douchebag. And she's certainly one of them, certainly for the first hour and 50 minutes of this film. In fact, we see her being quite tough on the two siblings, Miles and Maisie, um, played by the wonderful Macaulay Culkin. And the young actress's name, what did you say it was? Are you consulting your notes? I'll cut this, I'll cut this bit out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, her name's Gabby Hoffman. Um, she was she was in this film, and, and I don't think she was in much else. I think, actually, she was put off uh, acting because of this film, in a way, and I believe she didn't get on very well with Macaulay Culkin. And, uh, and in a way, this the whole experience wasn't a very enjoyable one for her. Much like Ma- uh, Mara Wilson, was it from? Um, she was in a couple of kids' films in the ni- the nineties. I think she. This is Doubtfire. Yeah, and uh, uh, what's the one with uh, Danny DeVito as the dad? And Mat- the- Matilda. Matilda, yeah. Um, I think she just sort of jacked it in. For, for mm. You know, she the elder sister Tia. Um, we were saying that she's insulting to the siblings. She's also in- incredibly insulting to the parents, and in particular the mum. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that John Hughes got right in the eighties is the dynamics between the characters and uh, the, you know the real hard hitting drama of it all. There's there's a a scene in particular um, which obviously sets off the narrative in it in, in into effect. Her granddad, uh, her mother's father's had a had a heart attack. She says to her mother words to the effect of. Uh, if if my family moved away from me, I'd have a heart attack too. And you know, when she says that, that's just so cutting and so insulting. But I mean, teenagers do have the ability to do that to really cut through. But to see it represented on the screen in that way is just so. You know, she'd already been horrible too, as well about the meal. Uh, they'd had a Chinese takeaway, and she says something like, "Oh, this is a delicious meal that you prepared, mother." Uh, and also when she's with the younger children, she says, our mother figure. And the kid, the younger kids are like, well, just don't call her that. So, yeah, she's horrible. She's really mean about the mother. She is. And, and you know, the, the mother was an interesting character. We can, we can talk about here a bit later. But you, you were right when you said that. I think teenagers can say these things to the parents. And, and, and I think when you're just looking from the outside in, it... it completely different it, it was awful to hear that but now I'm with you on that um but of course it's not long until we meet the star of the show Buck himself um and he's in a bar with Shinnies and it's uh, we quickly find out that this is the love interest of course she starts to talk very quickly about wanting to settle down have a marriage have the family basically the whole nine yards and Buck's doing his utmost to kind of keep the distance isn't he yeah, I mean, the, 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 there can be no sharper contrast between the perfect or, well, that's relatively perfect, the ideal or idealistic suburban family home with the huge home alone uh, house and the, everything's perfect, obviously, until the, the, the point where the family member has, a, has, a, has a, an emergency. On the other hand, Buck, <laughs> he, he, he takes his girlfriend out for a meal in a, in a bar, which obviously looks like just some backstreet booze that take place and you know full of all sorts of shady characters and it's very dark and um it, it's it very much in the center of the, the city center and uh you know the rougher parts of town and then you can just tell from the get-go that uh, books lifestyles is a lot more freewheeling and uh 
uh, carefree. And the conversation he's having with Shanice, like you say, is she's trying, she's saying, you know, I, I want to, <laughs> there's a great line, isn't there, where she says, I just want to hear the, the pitter-patter of tiny feet before I die. <laughs> and he says, can you remember what he says, actually, Jay? I can't, but I know I remember giggling. Go on. <laughs> he says, uh, well, I'll get you a mouse and a piece of sheet metal. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, we know straight away, don't we, that John Candy, this character, Buck, he's an oaf, but he's a lovable oaf, isn't he? You know that you're not going to hate this guy, even for all his faults. Yeah, and by this point in time, he played that sort of role a number of times. So even when um, just the first scene where we see him talking to Shanice, you're almost with the character straight away. You don't need to be so much introduced. You know what he's going to be like, but maybe that's just a part of me having grown up with the film and seen it that many times that I'm so familiar with the character but I don't know I think if you've if you've seen a couple of John Candy films or you know a little bit about him before you watch this film you know what type of character he's going to be the the um he's a bit of a rogue you know he's he's kind-hearted and there's a there's a gentleness about him and you know you know he's got good values deep down but he's just lazy isn't he as a person and you find out in that first scene that he's got a job with Shanice, or rather she's given him a job. She's very much in charge in this relationship. She owns a tyre shop um, and she's given him a job, given him a chance. Uh, God knows why, because he just seems like you're a bit of a waste of space, really. But but again, one with a, with a good heart. Um, but he, he's really eager not to take up the position, isn't he? And I think that she makes him promise. And you, you find this kind of plays out through the film about him kind of making promises to it and kind of keep them... But, you know, unfortunately for Buck, he does have good reason to break that promise because, of course, in the middle hours of the night, he gets a phone call from his brother, Bob, who tells him that, you know, Cindy's dad's had a heart attack and somebody's going to need to mind the kids. And Buck, being the lovable, kind-hearted uncle that he is, immediately says yes. And I don't know if that's because, number one, yeah, we think he's a caring guy, but maybe there's a bit of cash involved in that. So I think it's implied through the film is that sometimes after the no pun intended the the, the, the mighty book, um, and of course, unfortunately for book, that means he's going to ultimately disappoint Shanice, um, and he does obviously try and explain, uh, but the, there's that comical scene when he's on the phone and he doesn't get a word in. Uh, you know, have you ever been in that position? <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, you can edit this out. Um, I can't really say I've been in that sort of position, but I do love that scene. Um, you know, the what would you could you just let me what? <laughs> ah, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, things don't get off to a great start, does it? Because he turns up in the middle of the night and he actually starts knocking on the neighbor's house, <laughs> which is great. And it's funny because I don't know if you picked up on this as Buck turns up in the street. He's knocked on the neighbor's house. He, he realizes he's made a mistake. And then he sees his brother Bob on the step, on the porch, and he heads over. And did you notice something that was said by the book to his brother? I thought it was an unusual line. I didn't know whether he'd picked up on it. I can't think of what you mean. When Bucks goes up to him, he says, What happened to the mustache? And Bob replies, I had to shave it off. Now, I didn't know whether this was a bit of a reference to the overbearing wife uh, because you'll find as the next 10-15 minutes play out she's not just overbearing she's almost nasty isn't she well she's 
um, folded the picture from the wedding day with book on the on the end and, and cut him off the photographs, doesn't she? What's the Jamaica vote now that we're touched on the subject? Because it, it's hard, isn't it? You see the character of Tia, who's very dismissive to her mum. But then we see the kind of woman that she is. And I found that a bit strange. Was John Hughes straight away telling us that this is not a likeable character? She doesn't deserve to be liked. That There was not many redeeming qualities about her, was there? I don't know. I think you've been a little bit overly harsh on the mother figure, as it were. <laughs> I don't know. I think I, I, felt, I think it's feelings. I think I felt sorry for both. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe it's a common comment on um, what John Hughes thinks about marriage and uh, what it does to a guy, and you know, maybe you know, one way or the other. <laughs> Team, team's a wild. Be, be careful, yeah. Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't listen, does she? <laughs> All I'm saying is that once a guy's got a ring on a finger, then uh, things change. <laughs> well, less said than that. So, a book, of, of course, there, he's there, he, he takes on the job of the babysitter, and um, it means that Cindy and Bob can, can go off. Is it to Indianapolis, isn't it? It's okay for the her father. But the following morning, we see Tia coming down the stairs. Just like she was with her mum, she also starts to give Bok a hard time. And we start to see those early, the early dynamic between the two characters and how that's going to play out for at least the next hour, don't we? Yeah, but I think the difference here is that, I mean, she is only a teenage girl, so her experience is very much within that realm of teenagers dealing with parents who are, and the children and other young people who are walking on eggshells around her, whereas Buck doesn't play that game. He's not bothered. He'll say whatever, he'll do whatever. He's not bothered in the slightest, as we see later on in the scene when he drops it off at school. Not bothered about embarrassing her. Later on in the in the film, when uh, her boyfriend, Bug, <laughs> what a name, is, uh, is going to kiss her uh, in the car, and it's sort of acting cool. He just drives off. He's not bothered about, <laughs> you know, whether he hates him or not. But, you know, Buck is just from this other level entirely where he's just not bothered and he just doesn't play by the game. You know, she's she's very min- much trying to manipulate the situation. The second she comes down the stairs, she's giving him the evil eyes and, you know, like a shark and trying to read him, read the scenario. But she, she can't get hold of anything. In fact, it's not up until the scene where um, she's at the bowling alley and she hears something about a, a, a girlfriend, Shanice, someone else is talking about her, who comes along and Buck sort of doing the motion with his hand to sort of like to his neck, like cut it, stop talking about it. And once once she gets onto that, it's almost like she's got something then, something against them. It, it's a constant battle. It's the power shift, isn't it? Yeah, he even says, doesn't he? He says, you know, we, we, I thought, oh, come on. I thought we'd already done the Battle of Wills. And you know I've got a lot more going on. So the, the ball's in my court rather than it is in yours. So can we just get on with it kind of thing? It, it, it's tough love, isn't it? He's not being, you know, nasty to Thierry. He's just being hard on her because, you know, she's not deserving of his respect. If she wants to talk to him like that, he's going to talk to her right back like it. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, when the time comes when she needs uh, or she needs some support, then, then he's there, isn't he? He's there for her. So he is he is reliable and he does stick up for her. And obviously the classic scene when the door gets booted down 
uh, it's just one of those scenes. She thinks she knows it all, like most teenagers do. But when the time comes, she needs that support. And, you know, Buck's, Buck's the kind of guy who can give it to her. Um, and he is there he, because he, and because he doesn't play by the rules of everyone else, you know, he will go all out whenever he needs to. And it's implied in the film that if you ever cross her or rather cross him, do anything to his family, and he will have you. You know, that, that, that's the strength <laughs> of the, the character. And, uh, and also the warmth, really, as well, that comes through in the film. Yeah, I mean, even though it's a, a bit of a powerful scene, showing them kind of going back and forth, John Hughes never fails to kind of get his comedy in there, does he? Because we're also joined by young Miles, and uh, I think Buck puts the breakfast in front of him. I don't know if you remember what Miles says when the plate's put in front of him. <laughs> no. He's like, I think he says, he's cooking, why is he cooking our garbage? Which was great, because... <laughs> He seemed to have been cooking every ingredient from the house because he just had about five pans on the go, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. I've got a, a Q&A question for you later based on that, so hold that. Great course. stuff. I'll, I'll look forward to it. It's not long and Buck is dropping the kids off at school um, in his grand marquee uh, or the smokemobile, maybe is probably more apt. Um, <laughs> apparently it's considered a real classic. I mean, I'm not a gearhead like yourself. Um <laughs> But yeah, it's a, if you look up in, into that car online, it's like a it's much beloved. Um, but the, the, I mean, the car's almost the character in itself in, in the film. But does it tell us anything about Buck? You know, this old heap. You know, this old throwback. It might have been a classic in the day, but he kept hold of it. He, he loves it, even though everyone's kind of dismissing it. Is there anything in there? Well, it's like uh, it's like the car he drives in plane trains and automobiles, isn't it? That, that's what it's very very reminiscent of. I think that was like an old station wagon, wasn't it? Yeah. Like a, it's just like a, a Chevy Chase uh, National Lampoons. <laughs> With the wood panels down the side. <laughs> I think the, but, the car itself just tells us, you know, he's um, it's a bit clapped out and it's a bit of a heap. But, um, you know, with a bit of love, it'll be okay. And then maybe it's almost like a, a, a symbol of, of Buck himself. Yeah, maybe. But it's we soon see the scene, and you referenced it earlier, of when uh, Buck, the kids are at school, and Buck's kind of just moping about the house. I don't know if it's the scene when he's kind of eating Frosties and just hoovering his jumper, um, <laughs> which was great. But he's going through Cindy and Bob's wedding photos, and um, there's that one photograph that he notices has kind of been folded inwards, and he takes it out, and of course he can see that he's been folded out of the photo. I mean, that was... It must have been so crushing, but what what was that telling us? Well, so, so I can only imagine that uh, it is Bob, isn't it? The the dad that Bob was was once upon a time a bit like Buck and a little bit sort of uh, wayward, and then he and then he met the mother, settled down, had the kids, went to suburbia, all that sort of stuff. Um. She's very much trying to keep a, a tight leash on him. And um, it'd be interesting if we saw a little bit more of a side of that with the dad, you know, kind of like uh, maybe if, if there was a scene where it was just him and Buck talking to one another before before he has to go away, something where we were just reminded of maybe when he was a bit younger and a bit wild, that would have been not nice, but, um, you know, something. What do you reckon? But who, do, who, who are we saying bent the photo? Who folded that photo? Oh, Definitely the, the wife. Yeah. Yeah. 
she, so, she I, I, obviously sees Book as a, a threat and um, something from the past. Uh, and almost like she's taken Bob away now and she's molded them into something better. So she's uh, she doesn't want him being anything like him and she doesn't want anything to do with him either. Um, snobbish in a way as well, you know, looking down upon him. It's almost the opposite of what's going on with Shanice. Shanice has kind of got the boy and Cindy's now got the man and she doesn't want Buck kind of pulling him back down to his level. That's right. Um, Shanice is a very... Um, very good character actually and played very well by the actress who plays it oh undoubtedly but I do think there's a bit of a you know a, a bad message in that you know the playfulness of book is, is not a negative it certainly doesn't come across that way in fact the film almost implies that growing up in the mould that Bob has is more something to not be proud of it's like some of the qualities that book retains are the ones that you kind of should come out of the film admiring if you like yeah um, don't take yourself too seriously. And we've said this before, haven't we, on the podcast? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a scene actually, and I think it's that very scene when he's got the frosties on his jumper and he's just hoovering them off rather than cleaning them. You know, the houses and mess, the toys everywhere. But he's watching something and it's about the economy. And I think the person on the program says something like, Take that, Karl Marx. So it's very much a stamp on it. You know, I'm going to say it. Reaganomics. <laughs> uh, that's a real attempt, didn't it? <laughs> but it's the end of the school day and Buck turns up in his uh, smoke mobile to pick Tear up. Uh, but she has some male company in the form of Bug. That's the first time we've met this character. Um, we don't kind of learn a lot about him at this point in time. But straight away, I think, Uncle Buck doesn't think too much of him, does he? No, I guess he just sees him as just a typical sort of teenage uh, boy, you know, squirt, who's only after one thing kind of thing. Um, but also, whilst I was watching that first scene at the high school, JD, I thought of something that I mentioned a few episodes back. Now, I recall talking about a scene where we see all of the different cliques, as it were, outside the school. And in my head, I had Ferris Bueller or another film like that. And it wasn't. It was this film. We see all these individual shots of all the little groups of uh, youngsters and, you know, all like the fashions and styles. And it, it always stuck stuck out to me, the kind of weird things that they're wearing, like, uh, you know, like little shades and weird hats made of fabric and um, a lot of herringbone uh, jackets, big woolly jacket type things. And... Um, that it was this film, that's what I was thinking of. But it also got me thinking as well. They look a lot like the characters from The Breakfast Club. Now, was that because they, they've been influenced by The Breakfast Club or that The Breakfast Club influenced their style? I'd like to think it's the latter, you know, and almost like um, it must be really strange for John Hughes making a film about teenagers and now those very teenagers who he's filming or like the teenagers in his film a couple of years ago, because obviously The Breakfast Club was so influential and and how it it affected and uh, made teenagers look in the 80s. So I wonder whether they they got their look, these little cliques from that film, or or vice versa. I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, I was was thinking it could just be a John Hughes thing. You know, I can't remember the girl's name now who sits at the back of the the detention in The Breakfast Club. 
but she's kind of broody. She, can, as you say, she has the, one of those jack. I, I got the impression that a lot of them were like hair, just kind of um, hiding behind the glasses or hiding behind the hair kind of thing. Um, but no, I did pick up on that, and I, I just assumed it was one of the, the the John Hughes traits of the, you know those kind of archetypes. But we soon see a scene where we're back at the the house, and uh, Shanice. Oh, I apologise, Cindy. Uh, calls home to check up on how the family are doing uh, and, and of course Tia ends up speaking to her mum and um, she actually says that uh, Buck's been terrible uh, I think he says I think she says like uh, he's been le- he's been leaving Miles and Maisie alone things like that but I think it's weird that scene because it's followed up by Buck picking up the phone and having a chat with Cindy and I didn't I wanted to ask you about this because when I watched it I couldn't wake out what the film was trying to tell me because books are saying about you know the plates that he smashed and he's obviously been overfeeding the dog and, and making the dog drink toilet water but then the mum but then the mum says something and I thought it was really strange she says uh, something along the, along the lines of I just want you to know that it makes me feel really secure to know that you're there and I thought that was a bit of an odd thing to say because she spent the previous 30 minutes kind of denouncing this guy's character not happy that he's being, you know, the last resort. Um, in fact, even when she puts the phone down, she shouts out to Bob, as it say, you know, you're not going to guess what's happening. Did you pick up on that? Now that you mention it, yeah, actually, it is funny. Why would she say something like that? Maybe she's, maybe it's it's uh, partly being polite. Maybe it's it's telling us about uh, being a sort of false character. Um, but then on the other end, who else has she got to look after the children? You know, the the, the, the neighbours or whoever it was, they were in Florida, weren't they? So the only other person they could think of was Buck. So she's got to say, maybe she's trying to reassure herself, almost to say, like, I'm glad you're there with them, um, because they are her babies, aren't they? They're, they're precious to her. So maybe she's just being really hopeful in that. Or maybe she's being entirely false. But I do love that exchange before that when, you know, it's almost like Kim Buck is so uh, ignorant that the dog needs water that he just can't quite get his head around that if the dog drinks the, the blue water. With the <laughs> well, I mean, this is a guy who's microwaving socks. <laughs> yeah. If the dog drinks the water with the, with the you know, like the system blocking or the toilet duck or whatever it is. It just might be bad for <laughs> um, I hope you won't mind. I'm just going to open this bottle of beer. I, I'm sure the any listeners won't mind the small interruption. Um, but moving on with our movie review, J-Dog. Um, Buck soon gets a visit from one of the neighbours. I know you've just referenced the neighbours. Um, but this lady uh, by the name of Marcy turns up unannounced. Um, it's funny seeing really because uh, she turns up whilst Buck's trying to fix the washing machine. Um, it, it, it's very clever writing uh, because of course she turns up and Buck's in the kind of laundry room trying to get the washing machine started and he's humping and thrusting it and trying to you know knock some life into it. And I can't remember the exact lines, but he, he says something along the lines of, you know, I'm going to shove my load into you whether you like it or not. Um, you know, <laughs> that's the exact line that I can remember from that exchange. And my goodness, this film. Uh, I, I've only seen it over the past 20 years on television. It was only for watching this, uh, for this for this episode that I've watched it on Netflix. 
and to see it in full with the swear and um and that scene as well my goodness uh we talked about this so many times 80s fam quote family films have so many inappropriate scenes in them well judging by today's standards but i mean that 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 pushes it just over the edge of it he's it's implied that he's obviously uh, you know, making love to someone in the launch. <laughs> it's okay, J Dog. You can say fucking on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, uh, the, the that particular line about the load is, uh, yeah, that's very risky. But you said something then that you'd watched it a lot as a kid and obviously not understood the the references. So you know, maybe that's why we kind of shouldn't, you know, begrudge these films for throwing them in there because kids don't know, or at least you'd like to think they don't. Um, it's like when you go to the theatre and if you ever go to a, if you ever been to a kid's pantomime, um, I remember going to one, there was a famous British comic called Julian Cleary and it was uh, Cinderella and he played one of the characters, but there were so many jokes that he told for adults that kids wouldn't have got and it was so brilliantly written and done and crafted and it's like, the films did that as well. It's like this film and that scene in particular. A kid would not have watched that and, and thought anything other than he's trying to fix the washing machine. <laughs> Whereas obviously we see the kind of double entendres and the, you know the, the innuendos and things like that. So I thought it was really good writing on, on John Hughes' part. Well, just just um just before we do move on for any of our American audiences, uh, a pantomime is a is a very British tradition, uh, particularly around Christmas and New Year. And you, you tend to get a, a stage performance. Uh, they're usually quite quite low budget compared to, it's not nothing like the major musicals, but it's usually based around a, uh, a, a fairy tale so or, or a famous story. So for example, uh, Snow White or Aladdin or something like that. And what you'll have is um, a lot of jokes aimed at children. But as JD has just said, a lot of jokes um, definitely aimed at adults and really pushing the boundary and they usually um have people in the movie who've been television stars uh, many many moons ago or uh fading stars kind of thing so it's a famous face of them usually and they're, they're great fun for all the family but like jd says there's a lot of stuff in there that goes z, z, z list z list celebrities basically <laughs> yeah <laughs> goes um, and, um, you'll always have like a radio dj Usually a radio DJ, someone who was in a reality TV program 15 years ago, you know. <laughs> so if you're ever in the UK, uh, don't attend, basically. And <laughs> yeah. um, But soon at the bowling alley, Buck goes bowling and um, he takes the kids with him. It looks like a fun night out. But it's also a very important point in the film because it's the first time we see Buck stand up for Tia. And you know, we kind of already get the idea or we, we have the impression that whilst Buck's an oaf, he's still a decent, you know, good guy, decent man. But this is the first time he actively, you know, stands up for Tia. Um, there's a, a guy who approaches Tia, doesn't he? I think he calls himself Pal. He's got like a black eye and a toothpick. Oh, um, and he, he obviously tries to move. A toothpick around his mouth. He gets it stuck and he... It's hand in there, but he's so it's horrible. It's horrible. Uh, he's got the finger in the beer bottle, but um, he, he makes a move, doesn't he? Finger in the beer bottle and he points it towards her. I think we had a friend that used to do that, didn't he? he used to have the finger in the beer bottle. <laughs> uh, 
maybe it's a sleaze kind of trait, I don't know. But it's important because he stands up for Tia or goes to protect her in spite of the fact of how she's been treating him. Yeah, he's, he's very protective, isn't he? There's something very um, nurturing about fucking. I mean, there is a goodness there, and despite the fact that we know that something dodgy about him because the, the, the guy who does speak to her uh, and introduces himself to Tia, not Pal, uh, the, the other guy next, he's the one who gives the clue away about Shanice um, and Buck does the sort of cut it, cut it out kind of thing. But when he when Tia moves away, he gives Buck some um, some tips, doesn't he, for uh, horse racing? That's, that's coming right. up. So even though Buck's very not, he's not sleazy. Well, is he sleazy? He's not sleazy in a sort of pervy way, is he? But he's dodgy in a but in a lovable rogue kind of way. You know, he's not. He, he, he is the people he associates with are, are all from the sort of uh, uh, making end of the spectrum kind of thing, and uh, and obviously he's got his horns like the bar at the start and the bowling alley and all these kinds of places. Um, Don't forget when he's told about the horse racing thing, there's almost a split second where he, he kind of goes to say no, uh, but he's tempted. You know, he's he's a he's flawed. He, he, you know, he's down and out on his luck. You can see that's his only source of income is these kind of dodgy little. Uh, it's implied that there's some sort of cheat, is it? Yeah, um, almost like a, a, a fix or something like that. But you were right that, that there's the guy in the bowling alley who spills the beans about Shanice in front of Tia, um, which we, of course, soon see that she'll use as her leverage in the Battle of the Wills. Um, but following on from that, we have. Miles' birthday, which is a fun 20-minute uh, uh, little part of the film because, of course, we start off with the breakfast and we have, um, you know, Uncle Buck cooking those, you know, um, huge pancakes, uh, 300 sausages. It's funny, isn't it? I think he has the snow shovel to flip the pancakes. He does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then following that, he, we see um, the clown. Yeah, I think uh, it's been arranged by uh, Miles' mum and dad for uh, an entertainer. Uh, I can't remember the clown's name. Is it Bozo? Bozo the Clown? Uh, oh, I've got his name somewhere. Don't worry about it. But, of course, he turns up in his mouse mobile. He's had uh, a few drinks from the night before. I think he's been to a bachelorette party, hasn't he? I think he asks Buck, doesn't he? If you need any dildo jokes, I'm, I'm your man. <laughs> um, and, again, it's another side of Buck, you know, who shows that he's decent. He, he kind of says, you know, I don't mind, you know, people having a drink, but you don't turn up at a kid's party after having a few drinks and that kind of stuff. It's a great scene. It's one, if you don't remember the scene with the principal, you certainly remember the scene where he punches the clown. Yeah. Uh, again, probably when you're a kid, you remember the bit where he punches the clown, the clown sort of rises back up in that clownish sort of way, like a cartoon. But, yeah, you're right. He, he, he's, he's got something about him. He's got some models about him. He says... You know, I don't. The, the, the clown says, "What are you? Are you a nun or something like that?" And he, he says, "Well, no, but I wouldn't. Certainly wouldn't be doing that if if I was going to entertain some kids." So there's there's a a, a moral uh, center to book for sure. It's funny. It's like there's a similar scene around the similar minute mark on plane trains when Steve Martin 
is talking to the guy who's hailing the cabs and he gets the punch in the nose. It's very similar here. Uh, but just following that, uh, I think it's around the 54-minute mark into the film, Buck shows up to the school to meet with the assistant principal. And I don't care how many people you speak to about Uncle Buck, this scene will always be the, the kind of the scene that people talk about. And I know when we talk about maybe our favourite scene later, it would be very easy for, for us not to talk about that. You kind of want to say something different, but make no mistake about it. When Buck turns up at the school, it's five minutes of just pure glee, isn't it? <laughs> yes. There's a lot that John Hughes is saying in, in this scene. He's clearly using that scene. You're rustling, sorry, pal. There's a lot that John Hughes is saying in this scene. He's clearly using this to um, spout his own ideas and philosophy about education and, and careers and things like that. Sure, we'll talk in a bit more detail about what gets said in the conversation. But it's very much one of those scenes where, obviously, within this building, within this place, the head rules, the head teacher, the principal, whatever you want to call them, depends on which country you're is the boss when you've got someone like Buck who's completely alien to that outside of those rules again much like the dynamic with the teenage daughter character he doesn't play by those rules he's not interested in those rules and he tells it like it is from from his perspective the uh, the school of hard knocks as it were when he when he has a a word with with the with the principal who's very serious very uh straight down the line very much like uh, an authoritarian who all the children are scared of because there's another boy who's waiting outside of the office who's terrified, waiting to go in. And of course, Buck immediately is not kind of at, right back at this assistant principal. He's kind of standoffish. He's quite apologetic at first because, you know, he doesn't want to kind of step on her toes. But then she starts to attack little Maisie. And little Maisie, I think he calls it. A, she cut. She calls little Maisie a dreamer, a silly heart, and that's the point at which Buck bites back. But that whole scene when he walks in, it's just John Candy's face. It's not even what he says. It's when he sits down and he obviously sees this mole on the and the assistant principal. He does this thing with his with his eyes, doesn't he? It's it's perfect. <laughs> and of course, he introduces himself as a Buck melanoma, uh, Molly Molly Russell's what is it? <laughs> Um, but then, of course, he, he kind of shows this teacher who's boss, um, and, and you hit the nail on the head. The kid who's outside plays an important part in that scene because it cuts to him at one point, and he's, he's grinning. So he's kind of took the power away from this principal, hasn't he? That's right. Um, so it's a great scene, and he, and, and he walks out, and we have you could almost call it the Uncle Buck theme when he's doing the fist pump, and he gets a cigar again, and it, it's just perfect. Well, yeah, it's a, um, a great quote as well. Of course, what he's what he tells. The, the principal, as he's about to leave, can you remember? And what does he say? Well, he throw he he throws a coin down on the desk, and he says, <laughs> "Here's a quarter. <laughs> Go downtown and have a rat gnaw that thing off your face." <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. Just another thing as well on that point about John Hughes um, telling us about real life through that scene when he says uh you know i didn't uh, book says i did get a college degree you know i didn't need any of that but also as well as a, a really strange cut when 
um, the teacher in the classroom asks if the kids did anything at the weekend, and then uh, Maisie tells a story about uh, the dog or something, and then the, the the teacher out of nowhere just points at us, doesn't he? And he shouts, "Bless me, there!" <laughs> Somewhat comical, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's a, one of those weird John Hughes moments. Yeah, and there are many. Um, but we're soon back in the house, and Shanice calls. Um, and and she well, she, Shanice calls Cindy and Bob's house. But unfortunately for Buck, Tia picks up the phone, and of course she says that Buck has been going out with the neighbour Marcy. Um, and, and I think I don't know if she says she's spending the night, but this is a, a point where we kind of sense trouble. Yeah, and you can see it written all over Shanice's face. She, she's deeply hurt by this revelation that Buck's maybe having an affair, isn't she? Yeah, but Tia seems to really enjoy it. You know, there's a real nastiness in this scene, actually. I felt. With, with, with... She, she does. It's interesting you say that. She, there's a smile across her face when she first says what she does. But I noticed when she puts the phone down, the smile disappears. And there's a split second when her expression changes. It, it's almost as if she knows she's gone too far. And I think that might be a little bit of a clue to maybe this character's got some sort of redemption in it. She knows she's crossed the line. And uh, Did you not pick that up now? Yeah, yeah, on second thoughts, actually, yeah. But, of course, in light of that revelation, uh, Shanice takes it upon herself to drive to Cindy and Bob's house. Uh, and, unfortunately for Buck, um, he's actually dancing at the time with um, the neighbour, Marcy, albeit reluctantly. Yeah, and then of course Shanice comes in and puts two and two together and gets five. She was an interesting character, Marcy, wasn't she? Yeah, I mean, she she she's there just to serve that purpose of being the the, the neighbourhood floozy almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's Doesn't she say something like when when Buck stands it up, it's okay. I'll wait for the Federal Express guy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, but it's um, I think we're approaching the last half an hour of the film and Tia who I think at this point reveals to Buck that she's kind of got winning on him over the Shinny's thing decides to go away for the weekend I think she says it was the Friday and she's not going to be coming back till was it the Sunday or the Monday mm. um, and it's bad for Buck of course because he was supposed to be going to the racetrack at the same time um, to make his money um, so I think he, he decides, doesn't he, that he's going to go and take the kids with him. Um, but then he eventually kind of thinks, I know, I'll give Shanice a call and maybe try and get, even though I'm in a bad box, I'm going to try and get Shanice to mind the kids. Is that when um, it's but the kids are all wrapped up and they've got the hats on and you know they look like the freezing cold or something like that? Is that is that, that scene? It is, yeah. He has almost like a moment in the car when he's looking in the, in the rear view. That's it, yeah. And you can see the kids looking back at him. And I suppose it's that point that he realises that Tia needs him more than he needs his money. And again, it's kind of like, I mean, it's more than his money. It's his livelihood. And that kind of goes to show that, you know, when it comes to the crunch, Buck Melanoma will always choose his family. Yeah. Um, and of course, yeah, I think I think it is. He asks Shinny's to mind the kids, doesn't he? If I remember rightly, yeah. But the following that, we have the cut back and forth between Buck making his way to the party to find Tia. And it also cuts to Buck 
making a move or advances in the bedroom with a girl who we presume to be Tia, because of course we can only see a silhouette, can't we? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, book bursts in, and of course we find out that it's not Tia, it's uh, another young girl, um, and we find that I think Tia left the party early, presumably because of Bug making those same advances, isn't it? Yeah, Bug's presented very much as a sort of sleazy, typical teenage lad, do anything just to try and, you know, get with the girl. Um, that's a great scene when, when you know, the, we see the drill coming through the door and we hear the noise and the door falls down and Buck's there with the, the drill in hand. As he's walking away, doesn't he sort of wear the drill and with a big cigar in his mouth? I think he does. <laughs> but, of course, Buck, Buck was right about Bug. Um, this was the kind of impression that well, the, the, he, he, he sussed them out quite early. It's like, it's almost as if he knew that this guy was a bit of a, a, a not so much a player, but um, someone who was going to take advantage of these 15-year-old girls. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, of course, that leads uh, to the, I wouldn't call it a redemption, but it may be the reconciliation between Buck and Tia. Buck finds Tia walking the streets, doesn't he? And, of course, this is the point where they get in the car and settle the differences, so to speak. Yeah, they, they, it's almost like they call a truce, isn't it? And following that, Cindy and Bob return after their excursion, and uh, Tia embraces her mum, doesn't she? It's it's a little similar to, um, you know, some of the John Hughes films. Like you think of Kevin's mum in Home Alone coming in, the embrace. You think of Steve Martin in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles coming in with the embrace. It's like the sense of coming home. It's like, you know, the, the redemption uh, culminates almost in the hallway of the home, doesn't it? Life's full of everyday things and, and annoyances and grievances and falling out over stupid things that don't matter and pointless. And, and these films exaggerate these events, don't they, and, and take the characters away from one another and gives them that, bit, that space to, to realise what, what matters and what values and love really are all about. So that when they do have that coming together moment, it is special. And he did that so well in those films like you've just mentioned, definitely. This is one of them too. And especially after what we said earlier about what uh, Tia does say to, to her mum about dad having a heart, uh, her dad having a heart attack, uh, how, how she would have her family had moved away, you know, just how cutting that remark is and, and just how horrible she's been um, since the move that she's very resentful about. Uh, and But when they have that reconciliation, that moment, it's just made all the more powerful because of everything that's preceded it. So, you know, I'm glad that we had those horrible scenes because if we didn't, then the, the, the reconciliation wouldn't have been as, as powerful as it was. And it's kind of a, a conclusion of reconciliation because Buck kind of reconciles with Tia and he also reconciles with Shanice and they're so much of... I think Shanice tries to play on the fact that, you know, maybe he is ready for the family again, doesn't he? But everyone makes friends, it's the happy ending and then we have the, the final shot of John Candy. Right. That happens in planes. It's another nod to plane trains. It's like... There's a freeze shot on John Candy right at the end, and I think he just lifts his hand, doesn't he, in suits? Yeah, slightly cheesy uh, freeze frame at the end. You didn't like that in Plain Strange, did you? 
No, no, it, it, there's just something a bit off-putting about it. Um, corny. Um, so I guess we could call it a, another director's trademark. <laughs> and with that, let's move on. Then you know. Okay, J-Dog, as always, I'm going to hit you with four bits of trivia and then you can fire back some at me. I'm pretty sure we've kind of got some of the same, but we'll, we'll, we'll try our luck either way. But did you know that following what had been a gruelling day of filming, John Candy enjoyed a late night out with some of the locals? Now, this didn't go down well with John Hughes, who only found out because he just so happened to hear a local guy on the radio saying how great it was being out with the great John Candy. After hearing this, John Hughes cancelled the whole day's filming and told John Candy to get some rest and be back tomorrow. Now, I was surprised at that because you just always assumed those two to kind of always be the best of friends. It would have just been brushed off. But it kind of showed a different side of John Hughes that I didn't know existed. He was quite still the disciplinarian when it came to his, his, his agenda and having everyone ready on set. I can see partly why he, he wouldn't want him doing that. Firstly, as a professional, um, but also because he, he's ch- book chides the drunken uh, clown, doesn't he? So for him to turn up, not drunk, but maybe a little bit worse for wear, is um, is going against the, the the grain of the character. I I I had heard this one actually, JD, and I believe John Candy's attitude was, well, the, you know, book was meant to be dishevelled, um. But I don't think Buck was meant to be presented as a sort of uh, uh, someone who, who's drinking got in the way of, of, of things for him. So I can see where he was coming from. That that story reminded me of something else, actually, in uh, the, the Sopranos. I don't know if you're a fan of that, JD. I've seen some of it, yeah. Yeah, but one, um, one point in time, a guy played Tony Soprano. His name's James Gandolfini. He he was known to have had his problems as well, and uh, one one weekend he sort of vanished off the radar and just they had a big complicated um, nighttime shoot set up with helicopters all all it was all going on and he vanished uh, for a whole weekend just went drinking and there were all these stories about him go uh, appearing in clubs all over the weekend and uh, he cost the production an awful lot of money just in and time. Um, just through 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 going off and and you know doing wild things in that way, uh, you you would expect a, a degree of professionalism from people who are paid a, an awful lot of money to to be doing this sort of stuff. And also, there's the other aspect as well as you know where people see these people out in bars and clubs and things, and you know they think that they own those people down there and behave in stupid ways. And so the, it was quite risky behaviour too as well because anybody could have done anything, couldn't they? tried to cause a fight, you know, or I punched John Candy or something like that, which could have affected the production. So, you know, John Hughes has got to look at it from that point of view as a, a businessman and um, trying to get this thing done in a short space of time. You know, probably I'd probably did that. Exhibits a, uh, exert a, a degree of control over things like like most uh, filmmakers do. Uh, you know, they're, they're quite controlling. You know, maybe for 99% of actors and actresses, yes. But there can't be anyone out there to be willing to punch John Candy. I'll state my life on that one. Here's another one for you. When filming the Miles and Buck interrogation scene, 
you know the one I mean when I think he says that the record for consecutive questions was 38. 38. Um, John Candy actually helped out his young co-star by writing out the entire script for that scene mm-hmm. and sticking it to his forehead, uh, which I think uh, we, we talk about the, the kind of character of Buck. This maybe is a bit of a nod to the character of John Candy. Yeah, sort of helpful and uh, nurturing and bringing up the, the young the young guns sort of thing. And There yeah. you go. Who'd want, to punch, who'd want to punch that guy? <laughs> Here's one for you. The noise that Buck's car makes when it backfires. In fact, before I say it, do you want to have a guess what you think that noise is? The loud bang. There's two, really. There's two sounds. I don't know. It, it's a gunshot and a firecracker. Ah, okay. And the last one from me, I didn't have too many for you this week, but in order to make the giant pancakes that Buck makes for Miles' birthday, you would need the following, <laughs> if, you, if you want to cook this for tomorrow's breakfast. 300 grams of plain flour, 200 grams of caster sugar, 450 millilitres of milk, nine medium free-range eggs, 100 grams of unsalted butter and 15 grams of vegetable oil and ideally a snow shovel to flip it. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know, JD, the following names were considered for the part of Uncle Buck? Right, ready for this list? Go for it. Danny DeVito, Tom Cruise, Robin Williams, Tom Hanks, Jack Nicholson, John Travolta, Michael Keaton, George Wendt, who was in Cheers, Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, John Goodman, Ed O'Neill, and Joe Pesky. These were all considered before it went to John Candy. It's a huge potentials. It is, and some of them, you know, you can almost say that it could have worked. Danny DeVito, uh, John Goodman, maybe even Dan Aykroyd. Some of those other names, I just can't fathom. Like Tom Cruise, just couldn't see that at all. No, I mean, I'm thinking of the sort of the schlubbish type characters. You, you know, you know, maybe that guy from, I don't know if you know who I mean, uh, George Went. He's, uh, he's very much like John Goodman. He's, he was playing a character, character called Norm in Cheers, uh, sort of bigger guy who just sort of sat at the end of the bar. You know, these, these kind of actors, yeah. Is he the one that pops up in like Adam Sandler movies? No, you're thinking of John Lovitz, I think. No, no, no. I think there's another guy. I think he shows up in Little Nicky with these like almost like bulbous eyes. Uh, Steve Buscemi? No, no, no. Maybe it's not him. But not Steve Buscemi. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Um, Rodney Dangerfield. Ah, that's the yeah. guy. He's brilliant. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I think he's in Little Nicky. He is. He is. He plays, uh, he plays Satan, doesn't he? In, oh. No, I think that's it, Harvey Keitel. Oh, that's right. He's not the one who sticks pineapples up Hitler's ass, is he? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, Rodney Dangerfield Phil was a, a hilarious comic. Uh, great one with him. And when he, he goes back, he's a, a wealthy businessman who goes back to college, um, back to school or out of school or something like that, it's called. He's so funny. Uh, he only passed away <laughs> a few years ago. Very funny comic. Um, okay. So all of the internal filming, all of the indoor filming scenes and some of the outdoor ones as well actually took place in an empty high school. Uh, so they, they set up 
So when you see the inside of the, the houses or Uncle Buck's um, flat apartments or the bowler, all these things, these were all filmed inside a, a high school. So they used an, the empty school and, uh, you know, they converted the gyms and things like that into, into sound stages to record all of the all of those scenes as well. Which, when you think about it, is actually a really efficient way of making films, especially if you're going to be filming on, on location, you know, where you don't have the, the, uh, the film studios, as it were. Use an empty place, and then what, what better an empty place than, than an empty school? It's going to have so many different build, uh, rooms, different buildings, and lots of space to do this stuff in. So, yeah, good idea. It, it, it's amazing how they can do that. But it, it, the, the problem with that kind of bit of trivia is I don't like to find out about it. It, it kind of almost spoils the illusion. I always remember watching um, there's something on Netflix. I think there's a, sh there's a show called The Movies That Made Us. And I think one of the episodes was about Home Alone. And I think the same happened with that house. And as soon as I found out that none of those internal shots were actually of the inside of a house, it was so disappointing. And um, I'm sure there's, if there's any listeners out there who didn't know that, they'll also be disappointed. I'm going to share my disappointment with them just because I felt bad having it alone. Well, but there's, well, there's something about movie. There's a, there's a, yes, there's movie magic, and you know you, you kind of take into consideration budget costs. Um, but it's the kind of things that I almost don't want to know. If that makes sense. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you, JD. But the, the thing is, when you see the interior of someone's home, you have to accept that if if that was filmed in someone's home it would be totally impractical to get the camera and have the camera movements and the people operating the camera and, ev and everything along with it, you know, so that's why, that's why they use sets that, that pull apart, don't they, like a, you know, like a, like a Lego set kind of thing that just come apart so they can, they can get the camera around all these places and, uh, you know, they also use forced perspective as well where the room is much bigger than what it appears on camera uh, so, they can, so they can film it. Properly in that way. What, what about the uh, the bowling alley? That wasn't uh, filmed in the was that in the gymnasium as well? I'm not sure whether it was. Actually. I I imagine it was, given what you've just said, because the floor pretty much matches. If you can imagine a gymnasium floor, they would have just put racks to make it look like a bowling alley and yeah. a couple of couches. Easy done. Sure, I'm with you. Yeah, actually, I think I did say that it was, but whether it was, I'd, I'd actually have to look into that and confirm that one, JD. But it it, it would make sense if it was. Okay, so uh, John Goodman, I mentioned earlier, was someone meant, uh, considered for the role of Uncle Buck. He would actually go on later in the 90s to play the part of Fred Flintstone in The Flintstones. And, uh, that role was actually originally designed for John Candy. So that when you think about it in terms of casting, that would have been a great, great casting moment there. John Candy as Fred Flintstone. It was. I mean, I don't know if you remember the Flintstones movie. It was. It wasn't. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was one of those films where I think they had about uh, twenty odd people writing the script, and could they write anything decent? No, it was just awful, wasn't it? And then, however, they did seem to pick up the pace, and they think they seem to have got things right when they came to the sequel, Viva Rock Vegas. <laughs> the street. <laughs> Rock Vegas, featuring <laughs> uh, Mark Addy, I think it was. Um, you know, uh, the, 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 of, of you see, the Flintstones should have been that that exact film. You know, because remember, adults were fans of the Flintstones. It wasn't 
it was a cartoon, but it was very much a family cartoon. And I think if it was directed more to like an adult theme with maybe some innuendo, it would have been maybe a bit better. I, I can't remember the film, to be honest, but I do remember it being a real stink. Yeah, it was trash. Who it? else played the part in it? Uh, Rick Moranis was Barney. Of and course. Ali Berry was... Uh, she was the female sort of um, assistant of the baddie. And the baddie was played by Carl McLaughlin from um, David Lynch films. So, and he'd also been in Twin Peaks. Um, Dune, he was also in two. Uh, Blue Velvet. Um, Halle Berry, I think it was her first film. Or one of her first films. Certainly an early film for her. Um, but yeah, oh, Rosie, Rosie O'Donnell played. Oh, yes. Film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm and of course, the film that was a load of garbage, but I can remember everybody who was in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because, of course, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, we have the, the great scene when Adele Griffith starts singing the Flintstones on the Greyhound bus. Of course, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, nobody knows three coins in a fountain. Well, speaking of which, actually, um, you know, I was saying before about uh, the reason why I'm talking about this is people who are considered for the role of book. Did you know that? Steve Martin was considered for the role of Bob. I did actually. I did read this bit in in some of my re- review notes. You think that um, I actually think it would. Well, I think it would have worked. He would have played that role quite well. The problem is there was just not enough screen time to demand the the presence of someone like Steve Martin. Well, can you think? I mean, you're absolutely right there. But I mean, you know, from everything we know about these two characters in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, could they have spoiled it a little bit? Yeah, it would have always felt like tread on old ground, wouldn't it? If you wanted to see those two two actors on screen together, you would have wanted to have seen them in a, a sequel. To, you know, with that same dynamic between the two characters, not not in this way. I don't know. It just, just something doesn't seem right about it for me. Listener feedback. Okay, our first one came in from Prime at KVNG Prime Time who said it's just so classic. The huge pancake and the moments are awesome. Typical 80s movie. I see the pa- everyone remembers the pancake. Um, regular contributor, Bong Ripper Jack Tripper at Libody said lots of fun, a John Candy gem. You can't go wrong with Uncle Buck viewing. And, you know, we'd agree with that. It's like, how many times have you watched Uncle Buck? It just, it doesn't get old, does it? How often do we say that about 80s movies? Well, it gets... It gets better as time goes on. Well said. Uh, Brian Strazek, at fan of Red Wings 04, simply said, great film. I'll be your Huckleberry at Revolt underscore 2020, said classic comedy at its best. Captain James at Captain James 610, said my favourite John Candy movie. I mean, that's a hell of a statement because, you know, we all know this guy's catalogue. Um but it's certainly not a stretch of the imagination to say that Uncle Buck may be his finest work. It's certainly in contention. Yeah, I mean, when you put it up against Wagon's East, then... Uh... <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> it's funny, I refused. It's almost like I refused to see it, um, just because, obviously, I know that was his last work. But now I have further reason after you've given it such the bad billing that it was. <laughs> uh, and our last tweet came in from the insanely dangerous retro pod show at TIDR pod show. By the way, you want to check those guys out. Great podcast. I'll just confirm that one again at TIDR pod show. 
who said it's a great comedy that showcases the talent and genuineness of John Candy, a classic. It's funny, isn't it? You know that 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 point about the genuineness. We very seldom say anything like that about actors, but when John can when we talk about John Candy, people often talk about his character, his gentleness. He was a big guy, but something transcended the screen, didn't it, with John? Yeah, he, he emits a warmth in whatever he's in, certainly in this film. Jaffa, it is that time when we put your knowledge of Uncle Buck to the test. I have three questions and a bonus fourth, just in case I say one of the questions that you've got. So are you ready? Well, I, I feel ready, JD, but my confidence has been knocked after my uh, horrendous uh, attempts at quizzing on Ghostbusters 1 and 2. I think it was none out of six, wasn't it? I think so too. Not good. Well, here's time you redeem yourself. So, question one. What was the name of the school in Uncle Buck? No, don't know. Okay, it was Winona School. Winona. Um, So, none for one so far. Question two. How long had the assistant principal claimed to have been an educator? I'll give you the clue. She uses a decimal. Thirty point five. <laughs> you know what? Such a good guess. It was thirty one point three years. <laughs> I wondered if she went point three years. That's that's interesting. The twelve months. <laughs> so does she mean thirty one years and three months? Something like that. One years. Um, or there's one years and four months, mate. I don't know. <laughs> she divided 365 days into uh, decimal. <laughs> <laughs> Question three. Uncle Buck has a black and yellow bowling shirt, but what does it say above the left chest pocket? Royal something? What does it typically say in your bowling shirt? I don't know. Oh, you're going to kick yourself. It's his name. It says Buck. Oh. <laughs> I'll tell you what, seeing as though I've wrote a fourth question, I may as well read it out loud. Which baseball team does Uncle Buck support? The uh, Cubs. Chicago. Can you tell me how you know that? He lives next to the stadium. Any other reasons? Um, got a, a clap on, a clap off lights with the light switch. That's got the Chicago Cubs. So. Yeah, he also wakes up with his uh, big Chicago Cubs jersey. And um, when he opens his closet and everything falls on him, you'll see the big Chicago Cubs poster on the door. So okay. I make that one out of four. Okay, so Tia is quite resentful of the fact that the family have moved away to Chicago. But where did they move from? Oh, I know this. Well, I think because they've gone to Indianapolis, and maybe I'm going to assume that they've come from there. So is it Indianapolis? It is Indianapolis. And for a bonus point, JD, can you tell me approximately how far away Indianapolis is from Chicago? 
Smithers. Not, not a clue, but in terms of what? Miles? Miles, yeah. Okay, I'm going to guess. I have no clue. I'm pretty good at mistakes, but this just... Um, 200. It's a good guess, JD. It's about 180 miles, so I'll give you that one. That's a very good guess. Well done. Okay. Um, Macaulay Culkin um, complains about the, the dog that sniffs balls. And then when, when his mother says, can you use another word for that? And he says, I don't know another word. Um, as he's leaving the room, he does remember another word that he knows. <laughs> can you think of what the other word is? I can't. It was nuts. Nuts. <laughs> <laughs> That's two. Uh, well, three of you include the bonus point, JD. Okay. Um, Book says um, he is. Uh, he's trying to stop. Um, let's just say he's trying to stop taking uh, the, the drug nicotine into his body. <laughs> he's got a plan. This plan's got a number of stages. Can you recall any of those stages? Oh, it's such a funny line. It just says so much about him, doesn't it? <laughs> but I think he says, uh, I've, I've given up cigarettes. Isn't that great? He says, yeah, it's a five-year plan. He says, uh, I'm going to move on to cigars. Uh, and then he says something like uh, nicotine patches and then nicotine gum. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember the exact order, but it's great. Okay, so the order is he stopped smoking cigarettes, moved on to cigars, hoping to go on to pipes, then chewing tobacco, and then on to nicotine gum. <laughs> <laughs> Now, lastly, last question is you've got to be very eagle-eyed for this one, JD. Uh, when Uncle Buck is cooking breakfast on the very first morning, uh, just before Tia comes downstairs, he's got a load of things cooking, as you mentioned earlier. Which traditional, and it was really unusual seeing this in a film, American film in particular, which traditional English breakfast item is on the tray alongside the sausages? Oh, well, I'm given the way you phrased that question, I'm going to hazard a guess at black pudding. You're absolutely right, JD. It's black pudding. Yeah, yeah. Also known as blood pudding. Um, for those of you who've never had the, the delight that is black pudding, it's <laughs> it's congealed uh, pig's blood <laughs> mixed with just, oatmeal. <laughs> just try and imagine uh, a hockey puck on your plate. <laughs> but what it really unusual seeing that in a in a in an American film um for breakfast uh you know black pudding it was, it was just such a shock to see on screen but okay, maybe it's a delicacy in that part of the world or was <laughs> isn't it great that you, you see the, the contrast of the breakfast I mean I, I mean we're being biased but we wouldn't swap an English fry up for anything in the world would we Oh, definitely not. But I think most other people would look at it and think, oh, that's disgusting. You know, whenever I've been away to Europe, the, the continent, uh, you know, the, the continental breakfast, isn't it? It's known as, and it's, it's all cold things and ham and cheese and things like that. And I look at it and I'm, I'm, I feel like retching. And yet I would more than happily eat sausages, bacon, I mean, proper bacon, back bacon. Not that's the, it. Uh, not the rubbish, uh, uh, streaky stuff, no. Eggs. Uh, fried bread, black pudding. Uh, what else do we have? Toast, of course. Um, anything else that I'm missing off there? Well, if you're a fan, mm -hmm. beans, tomatoes, oh. mushrooms, yeah. hash browns, bit of brown sauce, lovely. Once you've had all of that, then uh, you know you have the heart attack, and then if you survive that, then you're just ready for the for the day's work. 
Well said. What's one thing that I'm actually JD just mentioning while we're on the subject? You see this in films, you know, when uh, the American family, it's like typical, all getting ready and sat around the, the breakfast table and there's mounds of breakfast and things like that. And I don't know about you, but my house was never anything like that in the morning. You know, you were lucky if you got a bowl of cereal, <laughs> if you grabbed it yourself on the way out sort of thing. And, uh, not quite. We, were, we were quite lucky, you know, Sunday morning was always the big file uh, time of the week um, and, and I had, there were six of us at one time and it was a race for the toast. As soon as that toast was on the plate, it was just everyone's hands were just reaching in, but, you know, <laughs> I, I do love my fry-ups. Honestly, I adore them. But, but no more on breakfasts. We could talk all day about that. Let's move on. Hey, you know, we said earlier in the episode, it's quite easy for us to kind of say, well, everyone always thinks of the obvious, let's try and think of something else. But I, I don't think I want to, because, you know, the, the point of this is to kind of say what our favourite scene is. And my favourite scene was Uncle Buck turning up at the school to confront the principal. Or not so much confront the principal, but I suppose that's ultimately what he ends up doing. And it's not just the confrontation itself, it's the build-up. It's him going to take a leak in the small urinal where he has to get down on his knees. It's, you know, the back and forth between him and, and the principal and the child and the waiting room his face. The script, the jokes, it, it, it's great. So there's no point in me trying to think of another scene. That is, you know, the jewel in the crown for Uncle Buck. What were your thoughts? Okay, so... I really struggled to come up with a, a, a scene in particular because this is such a film full of great moments. One great moment for me is when, uh, just before the family, it's one of the few scenes that we actually see with Buck interacting with the parents. The mum is saying, um, you know, I'm going to leave some blank checks. Remember those? <laughs> uh, and he's saying, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, don't, don't embarrass me kind of thing. I've got the money, you know, I've got the money. And then the mum says, no, I will, I will. And he's going, no, 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 no. And she says, okay, then. And I think he realises at the moment, you see the look on his face, like, oh, I've, I've gone too far here. I've pushed it too far here and I need to bring it back. And then he says something like, you think people will be able to uh, accept a, a, something like a third party out of town uh, a credit card or something like that and the mum says I'll just leave some blank checks and he goes well only if it will not make you feel uncomfortable kind of thing but I just love that that, that says so much about the character and um, he is uh, the word I think of the word for it um, again coming back he's not sleazy but he's a bit of a ducker and diver kind of thing and you know he'll, he'll do anything but in that moment he realises oh I've pushed too far here and uh you know, I, I, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have um, said I've got the money that many times because the, the look on his face that he gives, kind of a mix of uh, like eyebrows up and down, his mouth moves and stuff. It just happens for a, a second or two, but it's just great to see. It is. No, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. It's a fantastic scene. And as you say, he kind of realises, you can see it in John Candy's face, the point at which he, he's, he's crossed the mark <laughs> and he kind of has to reel it back in. Perfect. <laughs> But anyway, let's go on to talk about Uncle Puck in 2021. Movie Legacy. 
So J Dog, it's 2021. Uh, it means that Uncle Buck is now 32 years old. There have been a few unsuccessful TV shows apparently in the immediate five, six, seven years after Uncle Buck, um, not involving John Hughes or John Candy, and, and, and I reiterate, unsuccessful. Um, no Isn't sequels. The Weird Science TV program. I think Weird Science was a bit more popular. It was okay. He didn't it was... know anything about it, did he, until he actually saw it advertised. And with this, I don't think they knew anything. He knew anything about it until they uh, they phoned him and asked for um, permission to use footage or, or some sort of footage, and he didn't know about it. It's crazy, isn't it? But um, I think the testament that you can lay at the feet of Uncle Buck is that it's on TV an awful lot. Oh, very much so, yeah. Um, again, my my version in my head was is very much the uh, cut, no swearing version. Similar to Kindergarten Cop, in a way. That's a film that's on quite a bit. It's, it's the sanitised version with no swearing or uh, the crude references that are actually in the full-length version. The film works better with those in it, you know, that, that slightly older audience. Um, but yeah, but it is, it's a film that's on an awful lot. In terms of its legacy, you know, like you said, it's, it's had a couple of attempts at TV programmes. Nothing in the pipeline yet as far as a remake goes, thank goodness. Let's just leave it where it is. It's a great film. It's the end of the 80s. You know, it's a great way to see out the 80s. Uh, would I like to see a, a new version of it? No, because as we know, when they do these things, it's usually garbage, you know. Think of a remake that you've enjoyed. Think of a remake that surpassed the original. It's hard to do. Why did he bother? Well, there's no original ideas, is there? Let's face it. The idea of a uh, family or father figure looking after youngsters is a great uh, uh, topic uh, with plenty of mileage in it, I'm sure, with different characters in a different setting. Let's not do Uncle Buck again. Let's leave it where it was. It was made by a great filmmaker at the end of his prime, I would argue. Uh, in fact, John Hughes only went on to direct one more film after this, a film called Curly Sue. He wrote plenty of others. As we know, his 90s output, output, in my opinion, garbage. Something happened after this film that just, I don't know. Did he become too obsessed with himself? I don't know. That's a whole topic for the new podcast. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the film's got John Candy all over it. Just leave it where it is. No, I couldn't agree with more with you. You mentioned Kelly Sue. Was that the Jim Belushi? I I've not seen her actually. Um, do you know when I when I when I was reading it, reading up on it for first when I when I saw Kelly Sue, I got confused with another film with Nicholas Cage in called Peggy Sue Got Married. That's a completely different film. I think Kelly Sue is that one with Jim Belushi in. Kelly Sue, I remember watching. Um, you know, 25, 30 years ago. It's actually not a bad film. It, it, it's got some of those, you know, 80s qualities. It's very easy viewing. And I think when it comes to Uncle Buck, the one thing you can say about it is it's definitely a product of the 80s. You don't need to lend much brain power to enjoy this film. And, you know, let's say we've seen this film 10, maybe 15, even 20 times. 
you said before, it continues to be funny. It continues to make it laugh. Um, you can put it on an hour into the film and still kind of follow it. It's just it's got that charm, hasn't it? Yeah. All that John Hughes goodness, all that John Candy goodness. And um, I'm with you on when it comes to the, the remakes. I don't want to see anyone touching this. Um, but that's the place we're in, where originality is um, few and far between. But I'm going to now ask you for the all-important question of giving this a mark out of 10. So, J-Dog, without further ado, Uncle Buck, out of 10. Okay, because this film doesn't lose any momentum uh, at any point throughout the film, and it's non-stop, and it's, uh, it's just excellent right the way through, I'm going to give it a 10. Wow. There you go. You've gone right for it. It's got the 10. Yeah, I'm um, like to be honest, actually, JD, because I know we've given a few films uh, 10 out of 10 recently. Uh, uh, but then I thought, well, why not? Um, you know, why exclude a film just because you've given other films 10 out of 10? It doesn't make sense. No, I don't I don't want you to get into the habit of not giving 10s because you give 10s. It doesn't make any sense. If you think it, it, it ticks all the boxes that it was intended, perfect. Um, most people love Uncle Buck. In fact, we, how many times did we say this? Have you ever met anyone that says, I don't like Uncle Buck? No, never. It, it, it no seems problem. almost impossible. But J-Dog, any final thoughts before we wrap up this episode? Yeah, just to say to all of our listeners, uh, as ever, of course, thank you for your comments. Thank you for your feedback. Uh, most importantly, thank you for your time in listening to our episode. Really appreciate it. And uh, if you could drop us a review. On iTunes. That'd be fantastic. Great stuff. Yeah, well said, J-Dog. And uh, of course, I echo those words. Thanks to everyone who's took the time to download and listen to the episode. Be sure to check out our Twitter and Instagram page, which we'll leave uh, the links to in our show notes. J-Dog, that's your new task going forward. But we'll be back soon with another episode of The Circuit of Time. See you next time, nerds.